Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Before we dig in, we received some amazing news this week. Tales to Terrify has been nominated for Best Podcast in this year's This Is Horror Awards. It's an incredible honor for us to be nominated alongside other fantastic horror podcasts, and really a testament to you and your love of this show more than anything, children of the night. So, if you've got a couple of minutes to spare, we would so appreciate if you'd cast your vote. All you have to do is send an email to awards at thisishorror.co.uk with the subject line Awards 2019. Then, pick your top entry in each category. You can view the full list of nominees and get more details on how to vote at thisishorror.co.uk slash awards. There are some terrific stories, authors, artists, publishers, you name it, on this year's list. But you've only got until Saturday to cast your ballot, so better hurry. Speaking of contests and deadlines, the submission period for our Flash Fiction contest is officially halfway through. So far, we've got some great stories to choose from, from some authors we've heard on the show before, as well as many we haven't. If you haven't yet, head over to talestoterrify.com slash flash contest, and at the very least, take a look at our muse, a painting entitled Plague. 
It's an ominous piece of art that just begs to have its story told. Drink it in. Let the darkness flow through you, down into your fingers. Let it spill into words on a page. And then unleash those words by submitting a story through our contest form. What awaits the winner is $25 and your story narrated on our show. You've got until June 15th to enter. That's just about two weeks. One last thing before we hit the road this week. I'd like to take a moment to thank our amazing patrons, the people who truly make this show possible. Generous, disturbed individuals like Poppy Princess, Robin Braid, and Ken Hughes. I can ramble on about just about anything, but finding the right words to properly express how much we appreciate your support, well, I'm speechless. That goes for our newest patron, Jose Muinos, too. Thank you so much for your support. If you're not a patron yet, well, I'm sure you know what to do by now. Patreon.com slash Tales to Terrify. Visit, sign up, and enjoy all of the benefits of helping to spread our special blend of terror to the world. This week, I'd like to take you to the far west coast of Canada. In fact, beyond the coast, across the archipelago of the Gulf Islands, to Vancouver Island. It's a beautiful place, full of rolling hills and rugged mountains, freshwater lakes and ocean bays sandy beaches, and dense forests. It's a place I always loved visiting, especially during the winter months. When waist-high snow was ravaging the prairies, the worst Vancouver Island could usually throw was some wind and a little rain. Most of the time I've spent on Vancouver Island has been in its largest city, Victoria. It's such a vibrant, eclectic community, full of arts and culture and history, and hauntings. In fact, it boasts one of the most notoriously haunted hotels in North America. The Fairmont Empress Hotel is one of the oldest hotels on the West Coast, a palatial structure that's built in the uniquely Canadian chateau style, an aesthetic that the Empress's creator, Francis Rattenbury, was particularly proud of. Rattenbury was still a young man when he arrived in British Columbia from England, thin and mustachioed. But he had no lack of eagerness and attitude. He'd just finished his architectural apprenticeship and was eager to make his mark in a part of the world that hadn't yet been covered in monuments and landmarks. A fresh canvas, so to speak. And, after winning a competition to design the impressive British Columbia Parliament buildings, at just 25, he was well on his way. The Parliament Building is an immense and impressive neo-Baroque structure, the sort of thing you'd more expect to see on the banks of the Danube River than Victoria's Inner Harbor. All ornate stonework and copper domes. Completing a project of that magnitude so early in his career, it was no surprise Rattenbury quickly made a name for himself. But there were little things, a claim that he'd plagiarized the design from a Raj in India. And there were issues with acoustics that had to be fixed by hanging fishing nets from the ceiling. And more troubling still, 
a distinct lack of washrooms. Those shortcomings hung over the eager Rattenbury like a shadow. Though he had success with many other projects, some small, some large, he yearned for something bigger, something that would overshadow the mistakes he'd made in the design of the Parliament. That's when he received the commission for the Empress Hotel. It's an impressive building, too, especially lit up at night, lights reflecting off the waters of the harbor. But it's also a testament to Rattenbury's growing ego. Before the design was even complete, in a flurry of frustration and annoyance at last-minute demands, he resigned. Everything went south for Rattenbury after that. He made a series of business ventures that decimated any savings, including one that sunk because his business partner and their papers went down with the Titanic. His marriage was in rough shape, too. Flory, the shy, plain, yet kind woman who he had married, had begun to feel like she was holding him back. Rattenbury was a big deal, after all, or so he felt, and he resented Flory's unwillingness to put herself out there, to insert herself into high society. So, when he met the young, glamorous singer Alma Packingham, he was immediately smitten. He wasn't shy about his interest either, and after regular visits to the small apartment that he set up for her in downtown Victoria, it didn't take long before he was asking his wife for a divorce. His wife, though, wasn't willing to give up that easily, and she denied. But by this point his ego had clearly taken hold. Some thought the young Alma had bewitched Rattenberry. Others assumed it was drinking and drugs, things Alma was rumored to abuse on a regular basis. Flying in the face of his wife's denial, Rattenbury began to bring Alma home and force his wife upstairs while they partied and did their business on the main floor. Exhausted and sick of body, mind, and spirit, Flory finally gave in, and just a few years after, died of cancer. Even though she hadn't been a big part of society in Victoria, many people still felt for her and didn't approve of Rattenbury's relationship with Alma. Rattenbury found himself shunned. People would ignore him at parties. People would cross the street away from him. His personal reputation was in shambles, and his career wasn't far behind. With little left for him in Canada, he and Alma got married and moved to England. Rattenbury's financial situation didn't change once they got to England, though, and as Rattenbury sank deeper and deeper into depression, Alma, younger and flirty, full of energy and a lust for life, well, she wasn't one to wait around. She became involved with their 17-year-old chauffeur, George Stoner. Stoner was a likable and impressionable kid, and he fell for the glamorous older woman hard. So much so, that he became jealous any time Rattenbury touched or spent time with Alma. Then, one night, just as Stoner had joined her in bed, Alma heard a sound from downstairs. A wet, gurgling moan. She rushed downstairs to find Rattenbury slumped in his chair in the study, hair matted with blood. The doctor assumed he'd slipped and fell, 
Alma claimed it was likely a suicide attempt as a result of his depression. But by the time it went to court, it was Stoner that was found guilty and sentenced to death. Alma was acquitted, but four days later, her body was found floating in the River Avon with six self-inflicted stab wounds, three of which had pierced her heart. After such a violent end to his story, it's maybe no surprise that there have been an endless number of sightings of a thin, mustachioed man with a cane wandering the hallways and common areas of the Empress Hotel. The masterpiece Rattenbury had walked away from, but never truly left in spirit. Of course, it probably won't surprise you that Rattenbury isn't the only spirit to haunt the halls of the Empress Hotel. A maid continues to clean rooms on the sixth floor. A little girl frequently appears by the bed during the middle of the night. And then there's the elderly woman, dressed in pajamas and looking for help. She wanders down the hallway, knocking on doors, asking anyone who will listen to help her find her room. But if you pause to help, she'll lead you to the elevators and then disappear. It's thought that she was a guest who died of natural causes one night in her room. A room that's since been removed to make space for elevators. There are plenty of reasons to go for a visit to the Empress in downtown Victoria. And while high tea in the hotel's ornate lounge might be the most popular, there are clearly other experiences sure to leave a much more lasting impression. Now, let's check out of the hotel and into some fiction. Tonight we have the second part of Douglas Smith's tale, Doorways. Douglas Smith is a multi-award winning Canadian author of speculative fiction published in 26 languages and 35 countries. His short fiction has appeared in top professional magazines including Amazing Stories, Interzone, Black Static, Weird Tales, Bane's Universe, Escape Pod, Postscripts, OnSpec, and Cicada. His books include the novel The Wolf at the End of the World, the collections Chimeriscope and Impossibilia, and the writer's guide Playing the Short Game, How to Market and Sell Short Fiction. He's currently writing book three of an urban fantasy series with the working title the Dream Rider Trilogy. Douglas is a three-time winner of Canada's Aurora Award and has been a finalist for the Astounding Award for Best New Writer, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's Bookies Award, Canada's juried Sunburst Award, and France's juried Pre-Masterton and Pre-Bob Moraine. Children of the Night, join me for the conclusion of Douglas Smith's Doorways first published in Postscripts Magazine UK, 2007. The Hum Returns, 
telling the mouse the doorways are working again, but the one in front of them will not open. Someone else is now controlling the game. He leads his companions back to the second doorway, the one that seems to promise food, and they pass through. The mice have adjusted long ago to the physical sensations the doorways produce, and they recover quickly. But the room in which they find themselves contains none of the promised food. The room's empty, as the mouse knew it would be. They settle down to wait for the next move. The mouse begins to worry. They are hungry. They are thirsty. But mostly the mouse worries that whoever is playing the game doesn't know the rules. To learn the rules, you have to pay the house. And the only payment the house takes is blood. On the other side of the doorway, Jack waited for his mind to finish wrestling with what his eyes were seeing. A stepladder, stacked cases of canned soups, a portable power generator, piles of dirty clothes, unmarked cartons, and ever so many bulging green garbage bags. The second room. A moment later, Deke and Wendy shoved him onto the pile of clothes they stumbled through the doorway. They all stood up, looking around. What the fuck? Where's the control room? Deke yelled, waving his arms. Where's the goddamn control room? This is the room behind the second door, Jack explained. That old bastard! So that's what the curtain was, Deke yelled. Just a projection screen to make us think the control room was right in front of us. It must be behind the other door. He grabbed Wendy by the wrist and pulled her back to the doorway. On the other side, Jack could see that the gnomes had retreated to their original positions along the walls. We go back through, Deke said, and run for the other doorway before those things can reach us. Deke, this seems... Wendy began, but her words were cut off as Deke stepped through the doorway, pulling her after him. Too easy. Again, Jack finished for her, thinking of how their exit was a perfect metaphor for the way Deke had yanked Wendy out of Jack's life. No, he corrected himself. Wendy hadn't left Jack for Deke. They'd met later. Jack stared through the doorway. He could see the entrance hall. He could see the gnomes lined up along the walls. He could see the computer console and the domed screen overhead. But he couldn't see Deke or Wendy. Way too easy, he muttered. With a sigh, he stepped through the doorway. The doorway activates, and the mice move through it again into the room on the other side. They look around, sniffing. This room has a different smell. The younger mice settle down to wait. To them, this room does not hold their reward of food, so it is the same as every other room in the house. The older mouse sniffs the air again, ears perked for any sound, for he knows the rooms in the house always differ from each other in one way, in how they try to kill you. When Jack arrived on the other side, Wendy was sitting on the floor sobbing. Deke stood, mouth open, staring around a very different room from the entrance hall they'd expected. Only ten feet square, with smooth black walls and floor, lit by a glow from the ceiling, the room was bare, except for the apparently ubiquitous computer console in the middle. Walking over to it, Jack was not surprised to see the equation on the screen. Jack. Wendy sobbed. What's going on, Jack? Deke asked, his normal bluster gone. The glow from the ceiling brightened, and once more Rainer grinned down at them. You commuters have by now found out these doors do not commute. 
didn't think I was going to make it easy, did ya? What's he mean? What happened? Where's the entrance hall? Deke asked, his voice rising a bit with each question. Jack stared at the equation on the screen. I think, he began slowly, we now know what Rayner's last project was. They both stared at him. And? Wendy asked finally. Teleportation, Jack answered. And it appears to work, at least within the confines of this house, Jack noted the capitalization he'd used for this place in his mind. Holy shit! Deke whispered, his face brightening. Jack could almost see the little dollar signs in Deke's head beating back the demons of fear that had ruled there moments ago. You mean I've been teleported twice? Wendy asked, hugging herself as if to check all their parts were still there. Jack tilted his head. He could hear a low hissing sound. So what was that crap about not commuting? Deke asked. A mathematical operation is either commutative or non-commutative, Jack explained. If it's commutative, it doesn't matter what order you put the terms in. Addition's commutative, so A plus B yields the same result as B plus A. Multiplication is commutative, too. Subtraction isn't. Neither is division. B minus A is not the same as A minus B, Jack explained, as he tapped at the console, looking for ways to simplify the equation further. The hissing sound was getting louder. Great. Thanks for today's lesson, teacher. Now what the fuck does that have to do with getting us to the control center, Deke said. Control center? Wendy snapped. How about getting us out of this death trap? Jack shook his head. It's Rainer's game, Wendy. He won't let us out until he's finished with us. And I think that means reaching the control room. As for the math lesson... These teleporting doors are a mathematical operation, and as Rayner said, they don't commute. Order matters. Go through one of these doors and back again, you don't end up in the same place. Can't we just go to the front door and try to get out? Wendy asked, her voice quaking a bit. Screw that, Deke said. We need the plans for this thing. We'll make billions. Jack turned to Wendy, ignoring Deke. Wendy... We can't go back. As he said it, memories of his and Wendy's short life together flashed through his mind, and for a moment he forgot what they'd been talking about and exactly what it was he and Wendy couldn't go back to. He shook his head. These doors don't work that way. What's that hissing sound? Deke asked, looking around. Wendy wrinkled her nose. And that smell! Jack walked to the computer console. Offhand, I'd say poison gas, he said, as he began simplifying the equation further, working with a calm that surprised him. Rayner's next incentive to solve this puzzle. Wendy sobbed and sank to the floor. A very pale Deke slumped down beside her. Jack looked at them huddled together, the fear on their faces, the negative image of Rayner's grin above. A realization startled Jack as he read their faces, and he had to force his attention back to the screen. Jack was enjoying this. Part of it was being able to solve problems in here in a way he could never seem to manage in his life. But a bigger part was enjoying seeing Deke and Wendy afraid. Enjoying being the one in control. Enjoying Wendy needing him again. And how screwed up was that? Did he want Wendy back or did he just want not to have lost her? Was there a difference? He highlighted more terms and hit the delete key. 
The hissing stopped, and the clear barrier slid back from the door. Time to go, he said, as Deke and Wendy scrambled to the door and threw it. Jack waited by the console, knowing somehow what would happen next. The equation disappeared to be replaced by two expense reports, his next clue to the other puzzle. The puzzle Rainer was showing only to him. The first report belonged to Wendy. It showed expenses for the Vancouver trip from two years ago that had been highlighted in her calendar. Return airfare, taxis, five lunches, and five nights of hotel with breakfast and dinner room service. Still puzzled, Jack read the name on the second report. Deke Sanderson. Something began to squirm in his stomach. The report showed Deke had been in Vancouver the same week. Deke's travel expenses consisted of return airfare, taxis, and five lunches. That was it. Jack swallowed. He hit the delete key and the reports disappeared. Well, maybe he stayed with a friend. Yeah, right. A very good friend. Overhead, as Jack walked to the door, a grinning rainer began singing. Three blind mice, three blind mice. See how they run, see how they run. Over two years ago, I guess, I was pretty blind, Jack thought. As he stepped through the door, he tried to remember the rest of the rhyme. He had a feeling it hadn't ended well for the mice. The mouse smells the gas and immediately prods his companions through the room's only doorway and into the next room in the game. Once more, they settle down to wait. They are very hungry now. The mouse knows they will find food and water at the end of the game. He just wonders if it will be enough for all of them. And the mouse doesn't feel much like sharing anymore. For Jack, Deke, and Wendy, a variation of the last scene repeated itself in a succession of rooms. In each, their entry triggered a countdown of some sort of death trap timer devised by Rainer's twisted imagination. A ceiling of descending spikes, walls closing in like a vice, and in the current room, a temperature that was rapidly dropping toward a life-threatening level. So far, Jack had managed to simplify the equation enough each time to stop the trap and open the next doorway. And each time, he was rewarded with more evidence of Deacon Wendy's two-year affair. His reaction to that news mirrored his potential fate in the current room, that of a man slowly freezing to death, of a chilling numbness, inching up his body, and a feeling he was powerless to prevent it, and not even sure he wanted to. Yet his interaction with the two of them remained as before. Jack realized he wanted it that way that he was afraid of what he might say, what he might do, once the numbness had filled his entire body, once the last flicker of warmth in his heart for Wendy was gone. Rainer also provided Jack evidence of wrongs perpetrated against the old man himself, engineered by Deke and papered to look legal by Wendy, changing patent filings, falsifying royalty statements, redirecting payments. Strangely, Wendy's involvement in these activities surprised Jack more than her infidelity. He'd known she wasn't happy in their marriage, but he'd never thought she could be a crook. Guess I never really knew her at all, he thought. He knew Rayner was manipulating him. Rayner had first grabbed his interest by showing him proof of Wendy's affair before moving on to his real agenda. Rayner wanted Jack to be his avenging angel. But what do I want? Jack wondered. 
Jack could no longer feel his fingertips from the cold when he hit the final key. The equation was now less than a single screen. As the temperature began to rise again, Deke and Wendy stood from where they had huddled together on the floor. Rubbing themselves to warm up, the three of them walked over to the only doorway in the room. On the other side, they could see nothing but blackness. This is either very good, Wendy said, shivering, or very bad, Deke finished, rubbing his hands together. We have no choice, Jack said. If we stay here, the death trap will kick in again, or we'll die of thirst. After you, Deke said. Why doesn't that surprise me, Jack replied, stepping through the doorway and into the control room. Jack had no doubt they'd finally reached their goal. The room was exactly as it appeared on Rayner's screen in the entrance hall, including the alcove with the box on the raised dais. Stopping at the computer console, he noted without surprise that the screen displayed the now-familiar equation. A moment later, Wendy and Deke stepped into the room. Wendy looked around and then climbed the steps to the dais and stood on her tiptoes, trying to see into the box. Hey, one of you check this out. It's too high for me. The alcove was wide enough to accommodate only one person, so Wendy had to step down to let Deke look. Holy shit! It's a model of the house, complete with a rat. Rat? Wendy cried, stepping back. Can it get out? Deke moved out of the way, and Jack peered over the edge of the box. The box was indeed a scale model of the house, replicating what Jack assumed was the arrangement of internal rooms, including the doorways. Glowing doorways. Jack could almost hear his heart beating. Could it be? What about the rat? Wendy asked. I don't see. Wait, yes. But it's a mouse, Jack said. A small gray-brown mouse had appeared from where a wall in the model had blocked it from view. It looked up at Jack, twitching its nose. The mouse was in a mini-replica of the very control room in which the three humans now stood. Mouse? Rat? What's the diff? Deke said. Keep it inside the box, whatever it is, Wendy said. Jack reached in to pick up the mouse. I'm going to test an idea. Placing the mouse in the replica of the cold room they'd just escaped, Jack prodded it with a finger towards the door. The mouse stuck its head through, and Jack watched with bizarre fascination as the mouse's head disappeared, only to emerge a foot away, sticking out of the doorway in the model control room. Jack poked the mouse again, and it scooted the rest of the way through, emerging whole and complete back in the control room. Jack turned to Deacon Wendy. This, Jack said quietly, is a working model. Wendy and Deke were silent for a moment, and then Deke let out a low whistle. No shit, man. We'll have this transporter figured out in no time. So now what? Wendy asked. Can we get out of here? Jack was about to step down from the dais when a movement in the box caught his eye. Two more mice appeared from where the wall in the model control room had hidden them, no doubt prompted by the return of the first mouse. Three mice, Jack thought. Rayner's voice sang in his mind. Three blind mice. See how they run. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For some reason, or rather some visceral urging, for it rose more from his gut than his mind, Jack decided not to share the existence of the other mice with his own two companions. Stepping down from the dais, he walked back to the door they had used to enter the control room. Deacon Wendy followed him. The doorway was the only one in the room. Through it, Jack could see a scowling Charlie Vines talking to two black jackets. In the background, a crowd of Gentech employees stood or sat, talking in groups. That's the front entrance, Wendy cried. We can finally get out of here, Dee cried. We can... Oh, he stopped. Shit. Yeah, Jack said. You can't get there from here. You mean because it's showing us the entrance, that's the last place we'd end up, Wendy said. So what do we do? Yeah, Jack, what do we do? Deke repeated. What we do is, I solve the equation. Maybe we'll win a prize, Jack said, walking over to the computer console. Wendy sat down on the steps to the dais. Well, at least nothing is trying to kill us right now. Jack continued to work on the equation, factoring out common terms and making substitutions in the formula. After about another 15 minutes, he clicked the calculation command. The screen long formula disappeared, replaced by a short, one-line equation for a function. The function took four variables. The first was r, with a subscript i. The second variable was d, subscript ia. Next came the variable x, with no subscript. The final variable was m, subscript i. The right side of the equation showed the simple output of the function, two variables, r and m, both with subscript f. Well, at least that's shorter, Deke offered, looking over his shoulder. Ignoring him, Jack stared at the screen. After a moment, he spoke. I think I've figured it out. Do tell, Deke said, as Wendy came to stand beside them. Jack pointed to the left side of the equation. Okay, let's say that R subscript I is room initial, the room you're in before passing through a doorway. R for room, D for doorway, 
Wendy offered. Jack nodded. So D subscript IA means the doorway between two rooms, I and A. Room initial, where you are, and room A, the room the doorway appears to lead to. Maybe A for a parent? Whatever, Deke said. So what? Jack pointed to the right side of the equation, the output of the function. But you end up in room RF, room final. The room Rainer's device actually sends you to after passing through the doorway. Even Deke was nodding. So what about the other variables on the left, M and X? As if prompted by Deke's question, another line appeared on the screen. Enter X, zero or one. You're still listening, aren't you, Rainer? Jack thought. What's that mean, Deke said. Looks like X is just a parameter, Jack said. It can only be zero or one, a binary switch, on or off. He entered the number zero. A new equation displayed. He entered the number one. A different equation displayed below the first. He smiled. He understood. Got it. You figured it out? Wendy asked. He nodded, pointing to the first new equation. If we're in room A in front of doorway AB, then setting X to zero makes doorway AB deliver you from room A to room C, rather than to the room B you see through the doorway. Been there? Done that, Wendy said, nodding. Jack pointed to the second new equation, but if we set X to one, then doorway AB delivers you from room A to room B as expected. That's it? Deke snorted. We flip a zero to a one and we can walk out of here? Looks like, Jack said quietly. Wendy frowned. But what about the other variable? What about M? Who cares, Deke snapped. Let's rock and roll. But it's there for a reason, she persisted. What does it do? What's M stand for? She peered at the two new equations on the screen. Hey, M changes when you set X to 1. Wendy was correct. When X was set to 0, M0 remained as M0 in the result. But when X was set to 1, M0 became M1. Jack shrugged. I guess M stands for mode, or method. If X is 0, then you're in mode 0, the transporter mode. If X is 1, then you get mode 1, normal mode. Deke nodded. Works for me. Okay, flip that zero to a one and let's go. Deke, you're just going to trust your life to an equation? My life too? Wendy said, her voice rising to a whine. This house has tried to kill us every step of the way. That was before we figured out the doorways, baby, Deke replied. We? Jack said. Whatever. The point is, we can get out of this death trap, Deke said. Wendy crossed her arms. I'm not walking through that doorway until we test it. Test it, Deke snapped. And just how do we test it without using it? Wendy glared back but said nothing. The mouse, Jack said quietly. Deke looked at him. What? The model of the house in the box duplicates the doorways in the real house. I'll flip the switch in the equation and then put the mouse through the doorway. If it ends up on the front doorstep unharmed, that's enough proof for me. Wendy looked doubtful, but Deke nodded. Me too. Do it. 
Jack typed X equals 1 onto the command line. Standing up from the computer console, he walked over to the alcove and up the three steps to the box containing the model of the house. Jack reached into the box. The mouse huddles with his younger companions in a corner, nostrils quivering, tiny eyes locked on the hand descending into their world. The hand stops before them. It opens. The seeds the mouse had already smelled cradled in its palm. The two younger mice push past him, their fear overcome by hunger. Stepping aside, he lets them run to the hand. He watches as the hand scoops them both up and sets them down again before the door in the room. The hand prods them both forward. The younger male mouse scoots through the door immediately, no doubt expecting a further reward on the other side. More cautious, the female mouse pauses. She looks back at the older mouse. He has always protected her, warned her of danger, saved her time and time again. He stares at her, whiskers twitching, but makes no move to stop her. He is telling her it is safe. She scurries through the doorway. The hand withdraws. The older mouse walks over to the seeds the hand has dropped and begins to nibble. Yes, he has always protected her, but not out of any spirit of mouse chivalry for he has learned that when the house asks for volunteers, it is best to have someone else available to step forward. Alone, he settles down to eat. Well? Deke snapped. Jack reached inside the box and carefully lifted out a mouse. Walking over to Deke with Wendy following, he held out his hands with the mouse cupped in them. Deke bent down, peering at it. The mouse twitched its nose a few times, sniffing at its observer then returned to an intense inspection of Jack's hands. Deke straightened up, smiling and nodding. Well, the little rodent seems fine. He grinned at Wendy. Biting her lip, Wendy reached out a finger to touch the mouse in Jack's hands, her fear of mice losing out to her need to be convinced it was unharmed, to know the doorway was safe. The mouse twisted around to sniff at her finger, which she quickly withdrew. Well? Deke asked. Wendy nodded, and Deke grinned again. I guess we're ready to greet our public. Guess so, Jack replied. Deke frowned at Jack. You're not going to be a problem about this, are you? I was serious about the legal battle. Jack shook his head. It's all yours, Deke. I've had my fill of this. Just cut me that check. Deke's grin returned, and his shoulders relaxed. Soon as I get back. Great dealing with you, Jack, he said, pumping Jack's hand. He sprang over to the doorway. Hey, it's all black. I can't see anything. Must be what happens when they function as normal doors, Jack said. Like the door that led in here. Deke nodded. Makes sense. Coming, Wendy? he asked. Wendy shot Jack a look. Jack knew what she was asking because Jack knew Wendy. Knew every look every frown and smile, the unspoken thoughts and fears and feelings given voice to him, if not to others, by each tiny gesture. Wendy was asking Jack if it was safe. He nodded, and her face told Jack she believed him, and was ready to leave, to walk through that final doorway, to leave Jack again, and for the last time. Wendy turned to Deke. Yes, but you first. Deke shrugged. Stepping to the doorway, he waved to them both. Fame and fortune, here I come! Deke stepped through the doorway.
Here I come, she repeated. You'd better not try to cut me out of this, she muttered. She moved to follow him. Wendy, Jack asked. She turned back to look at him. What is it? I need to ask you a question. She shook her head, and the light from the glowing ceiling caught on her hair as it moved back and forth. Those little streaks of red shone back at him, and it made him ache for what he'd lost. Jack, we've been through that. She started to turn away again. Wendy, it's important. She faced him with folded arms. Okay, she sighed. What is it? One last try, he thought. Despite it all, despite what he now knew, he could almost see Rayner frowning his disapproval. Why can't you give us a second chance? Oh, for Christ's sakes, Jack! I just want us to go back, to the way we were when we first met, when everything was good. I just want for us to be happy to be together again. She had started shaking her head even before he finished. Jack, wake up! It's over! She gestured around the room. The life we used to have, Jack, it's like one of the rooms in this house you see through the doorway, but you can't reach anymore. There are doors in life that only work in one direction, too. Sometimes you just can't go back. She turned to the doorway, and Jack had a flash of a memory, hard and sharp as a knife edge, of Wendy walking out the door of their own house on their last night together, out of the door and out of his life. Wendy! he cried. She spun around. What? she snapped. His final plea died in his throat, strangled there by the coldness in her eyes, in her voice, and in the cold hard facts Rayner had shown him. That coldness numbed the last bit of warmth in his heart, and he shoved his hands into his pockets. Nothing. Forget it. You're right. He looked at her. It is over. Her face softened a bit. She walked to the doorway. You coming? she asked. He shook his head. You go be with Deke, trust me. I don't want to be part of that. Wendy sighed. Aren't you going to say goodbye? she asked. Jack just stood there. Wendy shrugged and stepped through the doorway. For a moment, he just stared at where she'd been, smelling her perfume in the air, remembering the way she'd looked, not now, but when they'd first met. Finally, he sighed and walked back to the box with the mice and the model of the house. Reaching inside, he picked up the mouse he'd shown to Deacon Wendy. Its nose and whiskers twitched as it trembled in his hand. He stroked it softly and then returned it to the box and the pile of seeds it had been eating in the analog of, not the front entrance, but the control room of the model house. He reached inside the box again to a different section to the area corresponding to the front doorstep where Deke and Wendy had just emerged, and picked up one of the two mice now lying there. He stared at the mouse, or rather, what used to be a mouse. The thing he held appeared to have been taken apart, turned inside out, and then reassembled with little consideration of its original form. A front limb now protruded from the back of its head, another from the side, the two back legs had been braided together with its tail, and its internal organs now oozed in a random distribution on the outside of its torso. It was, of course, quite dead. Jack had been right about the equation. If X was set to zero, then from room A, 
Doorway A-B delivered you not to room B as dry as expected, but to room C. And M-Zero stayed M-Zero. But you could force the doorway to deliver you to room B, the room that showed through the doorway. You just set X to 1 and walked from room A through doorway AB to end up in room B. But then M0 became M1, and M didn't stand for mode or for method. M stood for mouse, Rainer's final little joke. Mouse 0 became mouse 1, if you could still call it a mouse. The house gave you a choice. Change the room or change the mouse. Jack returned the thing that had been a mouse to the pool of fluids in which it had been lying in the box with the other dead mouse. He wiped his hand on his jeans. Goodbye, Wendy, he whispered. The ceiling display flickered, and then Rayner was smiling sadly down at him. I can tell by the biometrics, Jack, that you figured out how to simplify your situation by deleting some unnecessary terms. You are like a son to me, Jack. Now listen, Jack. Gentech is going to try to screw you out of your share. Jack muted the speaker. The only sounds left in the control room now were the single mouse scratching in the box and his own heart thudding in his chest. Unfrozen again, I guess, my heart, he thought. Or maybe it just started beating for the first time, and all it took was a double homicide. He looked up at Rainer mouthing silently overhead. Sorry, old man, but I'm tired of being used as a pawn by Wendy... By Deke, by Gentech, by you too. From now on, I play my game. He downloaded all of Rainer's project files to a memory cube. A check on the system logs verified that Rainer had never shipped any backups off-site. He ran a utility he'd written for Rainer based on Gutman's deletion method that would permanently remove everything on the house systems. Redundant, given what he was planning next, but he wasn't taking any chances. Locating Rainer's Armageddon countdown program, he bumped up the timer to 30 minutes and activated the destruct sequence and the warning announcement. He flipped the display to the front of the house and watched the activities long enough to assure himself Gentech would evacuate the island safely before the house exploded. Panning the display of the front of the house down to the doorstep where Deke and Wendy lay, he stood staring for a while and then turned off the display. Deciding it would be best to avoid the front door, Jack turned off the teleport system, allowing him to open any doorway in the house manually. He then put the still-living mouse in his jacket pocket with the memory cube and left unnoticed by a hidden back entrance that led to a small cove with Rainer's fully-fueled motorboat. Because Wendy had been right after all. Sometimes you just can't go back. That was Douglas Smith's Doorways, as read by Dan Gerzinski. Dan is a broadcast and audio engineer by trade, and has worked on many projects for local public stations. Lately, he's been recording literary works for LibriVox, as well as Tales to Terrify, and has just finished narrating his eighth audiobook. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night, 
The hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Don't forget to cast your vote in the This Is Horror Awards, and submit your story for our Flash Fiction Contest. If you're not already a supporter, I encourage you to head over and have a look at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash tales to terrify, to check out all of the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shoutouts and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app? Ratings and reviews are an easy way that you can help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we descend deeper into darkness with more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.